If we think of the book of Ecclesiastes as an airplane ride, then we're at the point where the pilot has come on the intercom to say that we've begun our initial descent. This flight is getting close to its end. In this book, the preacher has drawn our attention to the things that he's seen under the sun. And he's told us that all of life is like a vapor. That means it's like a a wisp of steam that we see for a second, and we might try to grasp, but then it disappears and there's nothing in our hand. No one can grab hold of it. No one can understand it all. In this world under the sun, we see that righteous people get what evil people deserve. And the evil people get what righteous people deserve. And the fool and the wise, they both end up dead. We might think that the only response to a world like that is just to give up. Why try to be wise? Why, why care? But that's not what the preacher tells us to do. While being brutally honest about kind of the, the nonsensical nature of the world, he's not hopeless. He even says that we should enjoy the life God has given us under the sun. Sometimes he says this in ways that are almost funny. So listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. He says, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil, at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy your vain life. This morning's passage is a collection of sayings where the preacher fleshes out what it means to enjoy life under the sun. He expands on what it means to faithfully live in this world that's so hard to understand. So the preacher tells us that we live in a world of work. And in that world of work, sometimes bad guys are going to reap what they sow in their work. The guys who dig pits will fall into them. But sometimes... A hard-working man is going to get injured on the job. He says it's a world where hard work can lead to prosperity and riches, but that you never know when disaster will come and wipe it all away. The preacher tells us that in this world we're going to have to submit to rulers, and some of those rulers are going to be foolish. He says it's a world with wonderful feasts, but also terrible drunkenness. And he's going to show us that it's God's world. That God is the creator who gives life. And yet, none of us can completely and exhaustively know God. It's a world in which God gives rain to bless both the righteous and the unrighteous. But sometimes that rain comes in the form of floods. To live wisely in this world, we're going to have to hold all of these things together. And so let's try to do that by starting with reading the passage. This morning we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and 11. We're going to start in 10 verse 5 and we'll read down through 11 verse 7. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you, you can turn to page 558. Try to find the big number 10 and then scroll down to the little number 5. Listen to God's word from Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 5. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. 
Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your child is a king, or your king is a child, and your prince's feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your prince's feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a child, in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed. And at the evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now I'm sure like me, when you first read that, it just sounds like a random hodgepodge of sayings. We're going to try to organize it into three big categories this morning, and I want you to understand these categories as sort of overlapping identities. The preacher is describing who we are in this passage. First, he says, we are workers. We see that God ordained work before the fall, and we continue to work after the fall. So we're going to see that work is good, but it's possible to work foolishly, and work comes with its own hazards. We are workers. Second, we're going to see that we are ruled. God appoints people to rule over us, and we submit to them. We are ruled. And then third, we are creatures. We live in God's created world, and we're subject to the natural forces of this world and the God who created them. We are creatures. So these will be the, the main three, the three points that will organize our, our time this morning. So let's look at this first one. If there's one major theme in this passage, it's the theme of work. We are workers. The preacher talks about various kinds of work in chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. 
He talks about a fool and his work in verse 15 of chapter 10. He tells us about laziness and warns against it in verse 18 of chapter 10. And then when you get into chapter 11, you see work returned to. So many scholars believe that this uh, idea of casting bread upon the waters is using an image of foreign trade to commend spreading investments far and wide. In 11 verse 4, we read of another kind of lazy worker who is staring at the clouds all day. And then 11 verse 6, the preacher encourages the farmer to sow his seed in the morning and to not withhold his hand in the evening. So work and images of work are all through this passage, and they're all through the book of Ecclesiastes. We are workers. That's the most basic point to begin. Work is a part of life. Now, we we shouldn't immediately think of the jobs we get paid for as work. That's included here, but work is all of life. So when Adam and Eve were first given a job to do, it was to to work the garden and keep it in Genesis chapter 2. And Eve was to help Adam. There was also the work of, of being fruitful and multiplying and raising children and filling the earth. So work is a very broad term in this book. And we, we see again that work existed before sin existed. God created human beings to be workers. So work is how we began, and we continue working after the fall. That was the point of reading that passage from Genesis 3, is that we see that man and woman continue their work, but because of sin and the consequences of sin, that work is now painful. God specifically says to the woman that pain will accompany the bearing of children. And he says to the man, pain will accompany getting your bread from the ground. It's important to say then that work is not totally ruined by the fall, but it's definitely affected by it. Being workers in God's world was an, is an important part of our original identity, who we are made in God's image. We are workers, and it remains that after man's fall into sin. We were originally created to be workers, and we are workers still. With that basic foundation laid, what should we expect from our work? Well, we see here echoes of Moses' teaching in Genesis chapter 3. The preacher says work is going to be painful. Verse 8 describes work in chapter 10. Verse 8 describes work that is probably morally compromised work. So if you, if you read Proverbs, you know that those people who are digging pits are usually up to no good. Those are, they're digging traps for people. And likewise with the image of someone breaking through a wall. These are invaders. And we see in these cases the the pit digger falls into his own pit. Praise the Lord. There's justice. The thief gets bitten by the serpent. This is good news. But it's not only the evil who experience pain from their work. So the guy who's working at the stone quarry, the log splitter. There's nothing evil about those professions. Work is accompanied by pain. It's accompanied by annoyances. It seems to be one of the points God makes in work after the fall. There's going to be thorns and thistles Adam will have to contend with as he does his gardening work. Imagine a garden with no weeds. We can't even imagine that. When we think of the work of gardening, it's largely the work of weeding, right? We don't have to do anything for those weeds to grow. We do have to do something to prevent them. Work is painful. Different kinds of work have different kinds of pain. So if you work with your hands, you're likely to have physical pain. 
If you're a, a commuter in Houston traffic, you know the pain of sitting in your car for two hours a day. We know the pain of working with difficult bosses or unethical colleagues. There's the pain of being unappreciated or overlooked in your work. And this is true whether you're working at home, raising children, or you're going off to an office every day. We all know that work is painful. And this is what the preacher tells us to expect. After the fall, this pain is a part of our work. But that's not all he has to say. Work is painful, but it can also be profitable. And wisdom can help us in our work. In verse 10, we see that the the wise worker is helped by sharpening his tools. We see this theme picked up again in chapter 11. Especially if verse verse 1 of chapter 11 is talking about trade, the preacher envisions profit from our work. He even commends the goodness of money. Money can be helpful. It can answer every problem. You can't take that too far, but we see the preacher commends work that brings profit. In 11 verse 6, there's prosperity that comes from the the farmer's industry. As he sows a seed and he, he works hard, he can expect a profit. So we see that we should expect work to be painful and profitable. And usually it's both at the same time. These basic realities of life under the sun are what we have to submit to. We were created to be workers, and that work is painful and profitable. To be wise with work, then we have to understand it in these theological ways. God made work. He made it as part of his good creation. And our sin corrupted work. This is the starting point for understanding ourselves as workers. And it should lead all of us to ask, am I working in such a way that I honor the God who created work? It should lead us to ask, where am I tempted to sin in my work? When it comes to that last question, the the preacher helps us by showing us some ways we can work foolishly or the ways that fools work. First, in chapter 10, verse 15, he tells us that the fool finds his work wearisome. And he follows that up with this kind of confusing phrase that the fool doesn't know the way to the city. The way to the city would be the most basic thing a person would need to know to work. Whether that's going to work in a trade or carrying the crops to the market. So this fool doesn't know the most basic things he needs to know to work. Or he maybe knows them, but doesn't take advantage of that knowledge. He ignores the basics. A foolish person isn't listening to the kind of basic instructions. When the boss says, here's the assignment, he's out to lunch. So a foolish worker doesn't do the most basic things they need to do to succeed. They don't sharpen their tools. This is reinforced in chapter 10, verse 18, where the preacher condemns laziness. Lazy work is foolish work. Work that isn't attending to the way things can decay is foolish work. Chapter 11, verse 3 and 4 draws attention to another kind of a foolish worker. And this foolish worker may look like the lazy worker, but the, the preacher kind of exposes some of his motivations. Let me read this again. Chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north... In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. 
He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Again, this, if, if we just saw this in out of context, if you read, if a tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie, you, you think, well, this man's an insane man. Why is he putting this in the Bible? But the point seems to be that, that natural things are going to happen. Clouds are going to be full of rain, and they're going, to, they're going to let their rain loose on the earth. Trees are going to fall in the forest. No word of whether they make a sound. But he who, sit around, who sits around worrying about those things, who's just gazing up the clouds wondering, was well, it going to rain today? Maybe I should wait to plant the crops until I'm sure it's not going to rain. Or what if, if I stand here, what if that tree falls on me? It's, it's a worker who's paralyzed by fear. This worker's not sowing, and he's not going to reap. Foolish workers are paralyzed by the fear of difficult circumstances. But work always involves choices and trade-offs. It involves a certain amount of risk. You know, you, you go to work expecting that at the end of that pay period, there's going to be a check for you. And there's even been times for some workers where that doesn't happen. The, the foolish worker says, well, I'm, I'm uncertain. There's a little bit of uncertainty here, so I'm just going to quit before I find out the worst. Foolish work, then, is willfully ignorant work. It's lazy work. It's workers that are paralyzed by fear. We could also, we could also add a couple of other things to our description of foolish work. You can be foolish in your work by despising work. We can justify this attitude to ourselves by saying, well, look, work is painful. It's inconsistent. It's unpredictable. It's easy to complain about work. It's one of our favorite pastimes. But if we despise work, we're denying a basic part of who God made us to be. On the other hand, another risk we we face is foolishly idolizing our work. We can allow our identity as workers to overwhelm every other identity. And if we do that, we're headed down a path for being utterly devastated when the disaster strikes or when work doesn't turn out as we planned, or or simply when we're not able to work as we would like to work or used to work. A scriptural view of work, then, sees work as God's gift, designed by God and governed by God, but also affected by the fall. We shouldn't despise or neglect work, nor should we put all of our hope in work. We must work with wisdom. And that's where the preacher turns next. He says there's a wise way to work. The wise worker, he says, works smart and he works hard. In 10 verse 10, the preacher tells us the wise worker has sharp tools. As I mentioned a minute ago, there's, there's this debate about 11 verse 1, about spread your bread upon the waters. This is a strange phrase that's entered our kind of the way we talk. We, you probably heard this phrase. And it can mean, in our way of speaking, generosity. Cast your bread upon the waters. Be generous and it will come back to you. And there's, there's some reason to think that may be the case. As I said, others think this is an image of foreign trade. Sort of an idea of spread your investments far and wide and they'll come back to you. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner thinks that it may be intentionally ambiguous. That the preacher is not meaning to nail it down to one or the other. So he's saying the wise person spreads their wealth far and wide. They're generous. They make lots of investments. They don't put all their eggs in one basket, as we'd say. And this is reinforced by 11 verse 6. 
The wise worker sows his seed in the morning and he works in the evening. And he does this because he doesn't know which is going to prosper. He maybe get blessed and both will be good. And so we see the wise worker is industrious. He plans and he works knowing that there are risks involved in all work. Wise workers understand that one way the Lord intends to bless and prosper us in this evil world in which we live is by giving us work to do. And as Pastor John showed us in the passage from Galatians, that that work includes all kinds of things. It, It even includes the work we do among each other as we warn each other and encourage each other to fight sin. It includes the work of serving neighbors and fellow church members. It includes the work of parenting. It includes the jobs that we go to. In all of these things, the preacher is telling us, come to the task of work with wisdom. Seek to grow in wisdom about your work, whatever that work may be. Sharpen your tools. We should try to understand in our work what we can control and what we can't. You can control whether you sowed the seed. You can't control whether the rains come or the wind blows. So we should understand what we can control and we can't, and then we should get to it. You may have heard the phrase that we should work smarter, not harder. In certain cases, that's a good phrase. Yesterday, I was cutting some wood with my circular saw, and it just wasn't working well. And I kept trying and trying, and eventually I I blew a a breaker because it was struggling so hard. And then I realized I had not tightened a certain setting on the saw, so the, the fence was not aligned with it. I needed to work smarter in that case. But the, the preacher's not, again, not trying to, to oppose these two ideas. He's telling us work smart and hard. And we should hope to prosper in the work God has given us. Even as we understand that things are not going to go as we planned. In one sense, we could say the punchline to the preacher's message about work is what he said in chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. It appears to be very simple counsel. Work hard. But we know it's very hard to do well. Maybe you're like me. It's, it's a struggle to think about planning for risk while admitting there's so much that you don't know and could never plan for. And yet we can't be paralyzed by fear. Don't you see how we need each other's help to do this well? We need to be humble as we approach this work. So how are you tempted to work foolishly? Is laziness your vice? Are you one who's paralyzed by fear? Or are you one of these guys who's tempted to charge ahead without getting the basics right? Like the fool who doesn't know the way to the city. And on the other hand, how can you grow in working wisely? Are you sharpening your tools? Are you doing your best? The preacher doesn't come out and say this explicitly, but underlying all of this work is trust in God. We know that we might get injured on the job. We, may, we know that we may invest in our children and, and they don't turn out the way we had expected. We know that disasters come. And so we trust in the Lord to provide. We trust in the Lord to prosper our crops. We cast our bread without knowing where the prophets will come, and we trust him to bring the the prophets we need to survive. But trusting in the Lord is not a substitute for work. We're not fatalists. 
No, we work hard to please the Lord and not men. We are workers because God made us to be workers. Given that this is such an part of our identity as human beings, we need to see that our witness to the gospel is wrapped up in how we work. I don't simply mean that we need to evangelize our co-workers, though that's a good thing to do. You should look for chances to have gospel conversations. What I mean is that if we have a deficient and a foolish approach to work, then our witness will be compromised. Our work is a part of our witness. With the way we work, we are saying something about the God who created work. So again, we need each other in the church if we're going to work well. Invite others in the church to consider your approach to work. What kind of worker are you? If you're a a child or a teenager here, you're growing up hearing the gospel and you want to follow Christ, part of how God intends you to grow is to grow as a worker. One of the reasons your parents have chores for you to do is so you can grow as a worker. What kind of worker are you? What is your life speaking by the way you work? That's the first point this morning. We are workers. Next, the next identity explored by the preacher is our identity as people under authority. We are ruled. We live under the authority of others. He began this passage by telling us it's, it's an evil situation when fools are elevated to positions of authority while the rich sit in low places. It's a little jarring for us to hear this contrast between fools and rich. Normally we'd expect the pair to be fools and wise. Uh, we don't really like the idea that wealth is accreted with, with wisdom. But when we read rich here, we should probably think of a man like Abraham or Job. These men were wealthy and faithful servants of God. Abraham was a kind of tribal chief or nobleman. And so it's an evil situation where a foolish man would be elevated to a position of authority over a worthy man like Abraham. Where the foolish man rides on the horse while Abraham has to walk in the dirt. Right off the bat, the preacher is telling us that our experience of authority on the earth is often going to be bad. We're often going to encounter foolish, foolish rulers. And that, that theme of bad authority really takes front seat in this passage. In verse 16, he pronounces woe on the land who has a, a child for a king and whose princes feast in the morning. And the next verse elaborates on these princes who are feasting in the morning. They're feasting for the wrong reasons. They're feasting to get drunk instead of be strengthened. Not only that, but verse 18 implies that these leaders are lazy. The picture here is of of foolish rulers who, who don't know how to maintain the house. They don't know how to keep the kingdom in order. And the, the last verse of verse 20, this verse about don't speak something in secret about the king lest a little bird carry it to him. It's, it's an interesting verse because it's directed to the, the kind of the servants. But what kind of king is this who's always listening for the evil words spoken about him? Derek Kidner said this is kind of a characteristic of tyrants. They seem to have a sixth sense for anything in the kingdom that might be spoken about them. The impression here is of a lot of foolish rulers. The preacher prepares us to live in a world where we encounter those kinds of rulers. 
And we understand why. There's no shortage of bad ones. If you've read the news this week out of Cuba or Iran or China, you know all about evil rulers. But even in places like the place we live in America, it's a, it's a mixed bag, right? We're thankful for the, the freedoms and the opportunities that are promoted by our form of government. But we know that often what we find is a mix of wisdom and foolishness from our leadership. So to live under authority on this life, in this world under the sun, is to live under foolish authority. But this fact doesn't mean the preacher is anti-authority. He doesn't say it's all foolish and reject all of it. He does say that there are good rulers. And it's, it's a happy land that has a good ruler. Where the prince knows what he's doing. Where they, they don't feast to get drunk. They feast to be rejuvenated and strengthened. The picture here is, the, is of rulers that are often fools and sometimes wise. And that sounds about right, doesn't it? We have a lot of experiences with foolish rulers and foolish bosses. But hopefully you've known firsthand the, the goodness of being under good authority. The preacher is telling us that the wise person is prepared for both. We're prepared to be thankful and, and to acknowledge good leaders. When our leaders do something good and wise that blesses the people, we, we should say so and thank God for them. But we shouldn't be surprised when our rulers are foolish. I think the preacher's counsel sets us on very solid footing for living in the world that we find ourselves in. I think it should help us not to be so obsessed with what our rulers do. So what's the practical practical payoff for understanding that we are ruled? Well, it helps us come to grips with the truth that we don't completely rule ourselves. We all live in a network of relationships. In some of those, we are the ruler. We have the authority. In some, we don't. And so to live wisely means that we live with humility towards others, especially our rulers, and even towards rulers who are foolish. Another practical payoff is that we pray for our rulers. Doesn't the preacher's observation about rulers go hand in hand with the Apostle Paul's command in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for all kinds of people, including rulers and those who are in authority over us? And we're to do this so that we can live peaceably with all people. We pray for our rulers. We try to model that in our pastoral prayers each week. We pray for the good ones and the bad ones. We pray for our rulers We pray for them with a goal that we can live peaceably under their rule. For people like us, though, who live in a a democracy, the Bible's teaching about rulers has an extra layer of application. Because we get to choose our leaders, at least to some degree. And we have to admit that if our leaders are fools, it's a reflection of the voters. As the saying goes, in a democracy, we typically get the leaders that we deserve. So we need to take the preacher seriously when he calls our attention to the evil of a fool in the place of authority. Now, Christians won't always agree on what the wise choice is when it comes to voting and and how to decide when you're faced with two fools to vote for. But we should agree on the importance of wise leaders. We should want leaders who exercise self-control, 
who aren't like the princes who get drunk on feasts in the morning. We should want to choose leaders who won't let the roof sink in. Look for those men and women who are willing to do unpopular things that are necessary instead of those things that are just politically convenient. We should agree on the biblical requirement that we should submit to leaders and pray for leaders. Those who follow the preacher's wisdom don't have to get their way to faithfully live in this world. Does that describe you? Can you only be content with your leaders if you feel like you're getting your way? Like with work, how we live under authority says something about God to our neighbors. To be a Christian is to confess that Jesus is your master. To be a Christian is to confess that you are somebody under authority. And it's to joyfully receive the Lord's rule over you. When we're Christians, we we proclaim it's a blessing and a privilege to serve our Lord. If your neighbors or coworkers look into your life, especially looking at how you deal with authority, is this what they see? Do they see one who joyfully submits to the good authority of God? One way to grow in this is to look at brothers and sisters who are faithfully submitting to foolish authority. Look for those people who have bad rulers in their life and see how, how they're living faithfully before the Lord. So just ask your brothers and sisters here. for t- Tell me an experience of a bad boss you had and how you maintained your, your faithful witness with that bad boss. Or you can read stories from history about Christians who lived under oppression and persecution. You can read the examples of African-American Christians in the U.S. who, who sang hymns in the field as they worked as slaves. Read about John Bunyan, who was imprisoned for preaching the gospel without a license. Read about the Romanian Christian Richard Wormbrandt in his book, Tortured for Christ, how he faithfully witnessed to Christ, even while being physically tormented. We all have a long way to go when it comes to testifying about Christ while living under bad rulers. So are you growing in that way? Are you growing in your endurance for foolish rulers? Are you growing in your appreciation for good ones? The preacher wants us to see we are ruled. And this is the world in which we live in. The final identity we need to explore is our identity as creatures. We are creatures created by God. This is the focus of the verses in chapter 11. The preacher starts off by saying that we are dependent creatures. We're dependent on uh, crops for food. We're dependent on this world where we we need things to survive. If the crops don't prosper, we can't earn any money. Or if if the crops don't prosper or we can't earn any money, we're not going to live, right? So we, we need profits. We need the crops to grow. If we don't have those things, we're dead. We're dependent creatures. And we're vulnerable creatures. You see this in chapter 11, verse 2. You don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. We have to face the kind of natural evil in this world, right? Houstonians know that very well. We're almost five years onto the, or four years onto the anniversary of Hurricane Harvey. We know the devastation that can come, but we don't know when it will come. You can follow the hurricane trackers. You can look at all the models and how they go everywhere. And we don't usually know exactly when it's going to happen. 
So there's a kind of natural evil. So it makes us vulnerable creatures. Kids, you, you might feel this way when you see the wind blowing really hard. We had a storm at our house a couple weeks ago where the part of our fence blew down. There was hail plinking off the ground. I mean, it, it sounded like we were, we were facing the worst. I had some, some scared kids in my house. Now, kids, I want you to know it's normal to be afraid when you hear those sounds. And it's good in those moments to pray. Pray for God to keep you safe. And thank God when he does keep you safe. But I'd like you to pray something else when you hear the thunder. When you hear the thunder, ask God to help you trust him. You see, thunder is a reminder that we need God. And we need God to save us because of our sin. See, God's anger against sin, it's even louder than thunder. But God's grace is for people who have sinned. When it thunders, remember that God forgives sinners who trust in Jesus. In the book that Pastor John gave away, there's, the, the author recounts how both Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon had, at times in their life, a fear of thunder. But once they became Christians, they began to hear the voice of God when it thundered. We know we're vulnerable creatures, and our vulnerability should lead us to the God of life. We also need to see that God has created us to be feasting creatures. We see this throughout the passage in a few interesting places. In chapter 10, verse 17, we, again, we see that this contrast between princes who feasted foolishly for drunkenness and some who feasted wisely to be strengthened and rejuvenated. This is an interesting contrast, isn't it? Verse 19 tells us that bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life. So we can feast for the sake of joy. We feast to get strong. We feast to, to have joy. You could start working out a whole theology of, of what feast and recreation is for from these verses. And we need to see that God that we, these things are so because God made them that way. God made us so that we can enjoy a feast. He made us so that food can strengthen us. I mean, you could imagine God making us powered in a different way. He could have made us with, with skin that has some sort of solar panels, right? So we just kind of soak up the sun to get energized. But that's not how God made us. God made us so that the, the thing we need to survive, food, is something that we all really enjoy. Remember, we've noted a few times, God filled the garden with, with good things to eat. Things that are pleasant to the eye. He gave us... He gave us the ability to enjoy these things. He even gave us creativity to come up with new combinations of things. Right? The peanut butter and jelly sandwich is not found in nature, but somehow we created it. <laughs> so to say that we are creatures means that we were created to enjoy the bounty of creation. To live then in this world, in this mysterious world that's almost impossible to understand, we have to understand ourselves as creatures. And this must ultimately point us to the Creator. The preacher presses this point in chapter 11, verse 5. 
He says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. This is a fascinating saying, because on the surface, it's just an analogy about what we don't know. We can't completely comprehend God's ways. But we we see the the subject of the analogy that the preacher chose is, is how life comes to a child in the womb. It's amazing that we, we, we don't know this today, right? We can, we can look at life in the womb. Like you, you may have had the joy of seeing your child on a, a black and white screen when it was just barely past an embryo, right? When it's just a little blinking light. As a matter of fact, I have had the privilege of seeing two of my children as embryos. I can show you the pictures. It doesn't look like much, but they're lives. But we, we can't say like, well, how, how did it happen? How did that life get into the child? God did it. He is our creator. Our very life comes from him. And he's the one who made us to be workers, to be ruled, and to enjoy the blessings of his creation. But this knowledge of God as a creator, as wonderful as it is, immediately raises a problem. Because who among us has lived as God has created us to be. Are we depending on him or are we taking his goodness and provision for granted? Are we rejoicing in his gifts or are we abusing them? The ugly truth of sin tells us that we've rejected God and that we've abused his, his creation in a myriad of ways. We're not just creatures. We are rebellious creatures. We're sinful creatures. One of the ways we sin is that we think we know what's best. Pastor Tim prayed this earlier. Adam and Eve thought their way was wise when they took the fruit and ate it. They rejected what God had told them and they they did what seemed good to them, what was pleasing to them. This is the height of foolishness. The preacher describes this in verses 12 through 14 of chapter 10. And he tells us that the the fool's foolishness is total from beginning to end. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. And he says that he does all this talking despite the reality that no man really knows what's going on. Right? Right? The end of his talk is evil madness, though no one knows what is to be. And the fool just multiplies his talk. He doesn't know what's going on, but he just keeps talking. This is a picture of us in our sin. We don't know the ways of God, but we act as if we know better than God. And we're blind. We're unteachable. It says in verse 14, who can tell the fool what will be after him? Who can explain anything to this man? And that's how we all are. Blind, unteachable, and as the preacher says, consumed by our foolish words. Because of the way we've rejected God and we've abused his creation, we deserve judgment from him. We deserve infinite punishment because we've rejected an infinitely good God. The fool is consumed by his words. 
And this is what the fool deserves. This is what we all deserve. This is what Christians mean when we talk about hell and we say that sinners deserve hell. We're saying that because we, we've all rejected God, we deserve to face God's wrath forever, for all eternity. And so the big question we're left with, if this is true of all people, then how can the preacher tell us to enjoy life? How can there be any, any feasting or any care about work in a world like that? To be candid, the preacher doesn't really make this explicit in these verses. There's no clear gospel proclamation in this set of verses. But as the preacher describes simple obedience in a vain world, as the preacher calls us to work, to submit, to enjoy feasts, He's assuming that God has rescued us from the severe consequences of sin. The good news of salvation is not explicit here, but without it, there can be no reason for joy in a sinful world. There can be no reason for hope in a vain world. So the only reason anyone can feast in this world is because God has fed him with true spiritual food and true spiritual drink. So let me try to make explicit what the preacher implies. Let's make it clear. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, became a true man. And that as he became a man, according to his humanity, Jesus was a worker like us. Remember, he's a faithful son and brother. He was a carpenter. He was a good friend. Jesus came to work. We see that in one of Jesus' greatest titles is that he's the servant. Servants work. And like us, Jesus was ruled. He came to endure the foolish authority of evil men. He was ruled. He submitted. And he endured it perfectly. Jesus had no sin or rebellion in the way he interacted with foolish rulers. And like us, Jesus was a creature, begotten, not made, but according to his humanity, he took on the flesh of a man, a creature, knit together in his mother's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the great mystery that we can't fully understand, but we know that Jesus was truly human because he did all the things that we do. He ate and drank and slept. We see Jesus doing all those things in the Gospels. And we even see him doing those things after he rose from the dead when he ate fish with Peter on the beach. The gospel begins with the sinless and perfect humanity of Jesus, the Son of God. So that's where it begins, but that's not all. When Jesus came eating and drinking, you know who he did that with? He did it with sinners and tax collectors. In chapter 15, verse 2 of the Gospel of Luke, we find that the religious leaders grumbled about Jesus, and they said, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. And this whole passage of Luke chapter 15 is, is the passage where we find the prodigal son, the story of, of people rejoicing when sinners are found. What a wonderful statement. Jesus receives sinners. This is why the Son of God became a man. He came to seek and save the lost. So when we think of the way we work, 
when we think of the way we submit to rulers, when we think of the way we depend on God as creatures, there's no way to think of those things without thinking of our sin. We think about the ways we failed in all those areas. We can't escape it. We deserve the worst that this vain and painful world has to offer. We actually deserve more than that. We deserve eternal punishment from God. But Jesus came. He entered this world to suffer the punishment we deserve. He did this so that we can have life. The only way then to wisely live in this world is to come to Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. He's the living water. He's the bread of life. By trusting in him, we find life. It's only once we've repented and trusted in Christ that we can apply the wisdom the preacher gives us. So it's only when working for Jesus that we learn how to work. Only when we submit to Christ can we submit to rulers. It's only when we feed on Christ that we can truly feast with joy. Jesus is the answer to the riddle that this fallen world poses. The last verse in our passage is, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. This is an odd thing to read in a book where the preacher has been so relentless about the wrong things going on under the sun. It wouldn't be surprising to hear the preacher say something like this. Enjoy the sun while it lasts, because you're going to die soon, and it's going to do you no good. And we don't have to look hard to find verses like that in Ecclesiastes. But here, the preacher can't leave us with pessimism. Throughout the book, we get these verses like this about the sweetness of light. I want you to see that a verse like this can only make sense because Jesus is the light of the world. It's only because of Jesus that light is sweet. If the sun is shining on you today, don't waste its warmth and its light. Your good creator has given you another opportunity to repent of your sin and trust in him, to rejoice in Christ. Won't you come to him? Let's pray. Father, we confess our need for the light of Christ. We confess that we are often dull to the truth of our sin and your marvelous grace in Christ. Please give us a new taste for the goodness of Jesus. We pray that you help us to examine ourselves, examine our our work and our submission and our dependence on you. And let this examination drive us to Jesus. I pray that you'll help us to encourage each other, that we'll build each other up as members of this church to follow Christ faithfully in all these areas of life. Help us to see how you made us and to live for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.